Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This week, two funny men for the price of one. Maz Jobrani and Jimmy O. Yang on the immigrant comedian experience. From breaking their parents' hearts to breaking into the big time with lots and lots of hustle and heartbreak along the way. So I'm Iranian. My wife is Indian. Our nanny is Guatemalan. Our kids are confused. They don't know who is who or what is what. I swear to God. Like, they spend more time with the nanny than they do with us. Like, I think that they think that the nanny is their mother. Me and my wife are the nannies. I swear, my son's three and a half now. Every night when the nanny's leaving, he's got a Guatemalan accent when he talks. When she's leaving, adios, mama. Joining us from Terangelis, where he's puffing on a hookah pipe and cracking pistachios uh, while wearing black socks, is Agai Maz Jobrani. Thank you so much. Hello, Robin Farzad. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it resounded with me when I saw uh, how you talked about your father being so openly gregarious uh, with people. My dad was a, like a tree. He was a money tree. I would go to him and say, hey, dad, I'm going to the movies. He'd be like, here's 20 for you. Here's 20 for your brother. Here's 20 for your friend. He would just throw us $20. So how did bills. you, you know, how did you break away and not become spoiled like one of the Terangelinos, you know, the, the, the Shahs of Sunset? You know <laughs> the archetype very well. These people who, you know, come into Tarzana, they want to live in Encino and then go off to Beverly Hills. And now the new apotheosis is apparently to divorce your husband and get a, a an Armenian trainer from Glendale to come and help you out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, you know, you know, know that. that cohort, you know, yeah. the huge lavish weddings, the loan sharking, sure. everything. So yeah. it turns Turns out, and I want to take this to your education, you went to UC Berkeley undergrad. Yeah, so so first of all, I think I think I benefited, first of all, from growing up in Northern California where there really weren't that many Iranians. And again, like I said, even though a lot of the kids there were rich, um, there was some subtlety in, in the wealth up there. Um, so that's one thing. I, like, I didn't know there was this many Iranians in Los Angeles until I moved to Los Angeles after college. And I was just as shocked as anybody else to see this many Persians down here. The Iranians don't even say they're Iranian. Iranians say they're Persian. Iranians, we say we are Persian. You know, it sounds nicer and friendlier. We even a smile. When we say we're Persian, we smile. I am Persian. I am Persian. I, I am not dangerous. I am Persian, like the cat. Meow. Were you a good student? I mean, you had to have been to go to Berkeley. Yeah, I was a pretty good student. So I, I, I was a good student, and I, and I also played soccer. So those two things helped me get into Berkeley. Um, uh, so I went to UC Berkeley, and, and at the time, I'd been doing plays since I was 12 years old, and I wanted to study acting in college, but my parents were like, no, 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 no acting. Uh, lawyer, engineer, doctor. So basically, uh, I, stu I studied political science thinking that I would be a lawyer. My parents had finally convinced me that the way to go is to be a lawyer. 1-800-SUSHKON. Um, Habib and the Heartbreakers. Exactly. <laughs> what is that voice, by the way, you're like? We do Law Office of... Yeah, that's uh, that was... a. Uh, so you're talking about a video oh that's online. Oh my gosh, it killed yeah, that me. Was, that was from a play that we did. So so when I moved down... To, so so let, let, me, let me just give you the Your chronology. life is all over the place. How am I going to fit this into an hour? I know. Uh, so, we, so listen, we, we, I finished undergrad at UC Berkeley in political science, um, thinking I'm going to be a lawyer. In the meantime, 
I take uh, an acting class at Berkeley, and just like my high school teacher had told me, my high school acting teacher told me, my college acting teacher at Berkeley, they both say, hey, you really got a talent for this acting thing. You should think about it. And I said, hey, I have thought about it, but my parents have convinced me not to do this. So then I said to myself, I said, listen, I, I don't want to be a lawyer. Maybe I'll be a professor. That's a good compromise so that it's something that, because part of being a lawyer is the security, the job security. Sure. Part of being a lawyer for the Iranians are, is that it's a reputable job and that it's, you know, it's something that, you know, you're, you're, that, uh, that, you're telling it, me I still have an unopened LSAT test prep kit from 17 years ago, but go ahead. There you have it. It's, it's a reputable job that the community will not look down upon. That, sure. Like it, the Persian parents play the community card on you a lot. Like oh, what, will the, what will people think if you become a, if you're not a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, what are they going to think? They're going to think we are, we are, we are losers and, and we are, and we are uh, uh, roughnecks or whatever <laughs> they think, you know, hamal is the word they use. Right. So, so, um, so I finished undergrad Berkeley. Then I said, okay, I'll be a professor. So I went to UCLA and started a PhD program in political science. Now, let me tell you something. My mother already was freaking out. By now, my father had moved back to Iran, but my mother in America was freaking out that I wasn't going to be a lawyer. I was going to be a professor. And she would keep saying, there's no job market for professor. You'll never have a job. And I was like, how do you know the job market for professors? Like, what are you talking about? And my father, I think, lived in denial. Every time I would talk to him on the phone, he'd be like, okay, son, so when you go back to law school and get your law degree, you can finally work for me. So these two, they just were not accepting the fact that I was going to be a professor, which, by the way, doctor. Yeah, it's a, doc it's a good job. So um, I got into the PhD program at UCLA, and I will tell you, that first quarter while I was there, I, would, I also started doing plays at the theater department. And I, when I would be on stage, I felt alive. And then when I would go to class for poli-sci, the discussion would always lead to um, what's our purpose as political scientists, and it was always publish or perish. And I thought, you know what? I, this isn't for me, man. So I was gonna, so I said, I'm dropping out. And Wait, time out. Would you hang out with the Arangelinos in Vestwood? In that area, did you kind of, uh, you know, obviously there had to have been a lot of fodder for you to pick up on to lampoon later on in your career. I mean, that well, is a really pungent culture. You go to the, you know, the coffee bean and tea leaf and vest food and you see the, you know, the old guy getting out in sneakers and black socks out of a Bentley and he's got gold chains around his neck. And there are all these different characters that you, you only kind of see lightly lampoon on the Shahs of Sunset, but it must have given you a lot of material. Well, you know, it wasn't. Uh, listen, I still when I was when I was getting my PhD at UCLA, uh, my my friends were either the PhD students or they were or I was doing plays at the time, so they were the actors in the plays. I I didn't. I still had not gotten fully immersed in the Persian culture. I had now. Here's the thing it, at UC Berkeley, and I and I've and I've and I've noticed this with a lot of communities. I think in undergrad, a lot of people find their find people of the of the same background and they gravitate towards them. So at UC Berkeley, I met a whole group of friends. I met more, like, like growing up in, 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 in Marin, I had a handful of Persian friends, I had a lot of American non-Persian friends, and it was all mixed together. When I went to UC Berkeley, at a certain point, I met a lot of Persians who had grown up in America who were very much like me. And so we basically had this camaraderie. Was and there any chastigari or courtship stuff? No, we were too young. We were all very Americanized and we were all very much just like it was this handful of guys who 
who really hit it off because we all kind of uh, um, got each other. A handful of them had come from Los Angeles to Cal, uh, and um, and then I was from Northern California, and we all would hang out and have a great time. And none of us were into we weren't that we weren't that immersed in the Persian culture. We would go to nightclubs and stuff, which um, you know. So you'd be at the Viper Room or something like that? No, no, no. This is Northern California. Oh, this is Northern California. Yeah, I want to yeah. get to Terangelis, man. Well, that's Quit what I'm saying. So, on my ears. No, no. So, so, <laughs> so what I'm saying is from Northern California, those are the Iranians that I met. And then when I came down to L.A., those same guys had moved back down to L.A. Mm. So those, that was my end to the Persian culture in, 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 in uh, Los Angeles where my friends from, that I'd met at Cal. So then I, I, when I would hang out with them – Yes, I would see more of the Persian culture. Again, we were all very Americanized. Like I had a buddy of mine, this guy named Afshin, and we would like we would go and we would sneak into um, uh, this, uh, there was a club called Renaissance. I think we would sneak into the club Renaissance because it was impossible for just two Persian dudes to get into a club. We would we would get reservations, we would get dinner reservations, and we would say our girlfriends are coming, and we would go there. And we would say, you know what? They're not here yet. Can we just hang by the bar? So while we're hanging by the bar, when the maitre d' would look the other way, we'd sneak right into the club and we'd be in. And that was our little, that was our little gimmick. And the joke was his name was Afshin, but people called him Shinner. Um, like he, he was even more Americanized than I was. You know, We were all in frats and stuff in Northern California. So the joke we would do is we'd say, it's Shinner for dinner. And we would go, we would go sneak in. So that was, so, but, but then eventually what happened was I got to know more and more Persians. And yes, I would observe this crazy, uh, um, ostentatious Persian culture uh, that was going on. And the 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 interesting thing is that um, then I ended up doing a play. A friend of mine, an Iranian guy, was producing a play. It was a play that was written in English, but it was about an Iranian guy who goes on a blind date with an Iranian girl. And the guy is a charlatan and lying about all the money he has. And the girl is a gold digger and she's looking for a rich dude. And so this play was written for the Persian community in Los Angeles and it was a hit uh, in that it was the first time there was a play in English making fun of these characters that you're talking about. Like my character, his name was Jamshid and he would say, you know, you can call me Jimmy. You know, I own four buildings in downtown. I'm this, I'm that. Meanwhile, while he's on the date with this Persian girl, he's on the phone with his buddy trying to see if his buddy's hooking up with any blonde girls because he wants to go hang out with them. The Persian girl is asking this guy about what he owns and 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 basically it, we call it the blind date, which is the words blind date but said with a thick Persian accent. And then the second act we call the wedding and that's where these two people that were made for each other, mm. marry each other. And in the and in the wedding ceremony, the the uh, cleric actually says things like, you know, Jamshid, do you promise to give Sharona um, a uh, condo in one of the Wilshire Corridor high-rises, 15 stories and above, marble counters, chandeliers, a room for her mother to stay with you? I mean, it was make, we were totally lampooning that culture. And that's when I, we started doing that. 
We're talking to Iranian-American funny man Maz Jabrani. Uh, what's called this, you know, uh, <laughs> this Iranian life, as it were. Uh, and I uh, want to fast forward you to the point where uh, you kind of hit a tipping point. I need to leave this Ph.D. program. It's not for me. Take us to your do or die moment where you had to take the career risk and and speak to how difficult it was to kind of square that with your mother and, and father who wanted you to be a lawyer or an engineer or a true doctor. Well, um, I was doing a play at UCLA while also getting my PhD, and I loved doing the play. And the PhD, there was a paper due. There was just a short paper, five pages. And I was sitting in – and at the time, I'm living with my mom because my mother lived in the high-rises in Westwood right near UCLA. So it, it made sense to live close to the school. And so I'm sitting at midnight um, in the living room with my laptop computer open, getting ready to write a five-page paper. And it really hits me that I go, I really have no interest in doing this at all. Hmm. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I closed the laptop. And Robin, I'll tell you, it was one of the best feelings I've ever had in my entire life. When you realize that this responsibility that you have is not life and death, it's not the end of the world, and you just say no. And I just closed it. And I was like, oh, my God, that felt so good. And so the next morning, I tell my mom and my grandmother, who was living with us at the time, I said, hey, I've decided to drop out of my PhD program. And they're like, what? And I go, yeah, I'm going to drop out and go pursue acting. And they're like, you're crazy. And it was funny because then they really were freaking out. And they they were saying things like they were trying to plead with me. They were like, listen, this acting is just it's not real. You should you know, okay, fine, do it as a hobby on the side, but at least find a job that people need. At least, and my mom actually said, at least learn to become a mechanic because (laughs) people need mechanics. Nobody needs an actor. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, you know what it is, Robin? Here's what it is. In analyzing it, I realized, you know, these people are people that are coming from a revolution. These people were living large in another country and suddenly their lives were turned upside down and they saw friends who were generals in one country and working at a gas station in another. They saw friends who were doctors who couldn't continue to be doctors. So in my mom's mind, I think she thought, hey, at least if you became a mechanic, you could be a mechanic anywhere. So once the revolution happens in America, which is of course inevitable, then you could go to Argentina and be a mechanic. That was their thought process. So these mm-hmm. people were living, and by these people, I mean my mother, my grandmother, these people whose lives have been affected in such a uh, revolutionary way, for lack of a better term. Um, these people were living in this constant uh, state of anxiety that, that at any given moment, your life could be turned upside down. So that's why I also feel that that also added to a lot of Iranians not putting their money in uh, 401ks and all this other stuff, because in their minds, they're thinking, by the time you get there, it's not going to be there. Like, why trust? Well, incidentally, incidentally, Aga, you know, I have something I've coined over the years called the Iranian Contrarian Relative Index. When I'm in Tehranjelis, um and I get pulled aside by a relative I never even knew I had, he says, uh, "Farzad, you need to get your head out of a stock market. Real money is in real estate, Aga. It's no, <laughs> no. People need me a warehouse. Let's buy a warehouse and just, let's buy the oil and put it in barrels. That's yeah. typically calling the top of the market. I.e., I should do the exact." opposite of what Folan Folan Aga Jamshid said. Um, That's funny. They have a kind of a knack for not trusting the system. And again, we're, we're, we're stereotyping here, but what's a little stereotyping among two 
Iranian guys, right? Uh, yeah. You know, Persian rugs, nuts, gold, always at the... If ever I get an unsolicited call from a relative I never knew I had, it's pretty much the top of the market. Um, and and I, I think it does speak to that trauma and coming here and having something and suddenly having nothing and, and reaching for a permanence. I want to get a sense for when maybe you redeemed yourself with... Um, your mother is kind of the acting rebel without a clue. You know, again, it's so funny because I, you know, I never even thought of the, these moments until you brought it up. Even the moment of them. That's why time. I get paid the big bucks, Aga. Yeah, you're like it's like a therapy session, man. Yeah, I'll um, take your copay. <laughs> no, it's like because because they never sat us down to say, "Hey, kids, we're staying," and she never sat me down to go, "Son, I'm proud of you." Like it never. Those moments don't happen. Like I don't have those cinematic moments then in my let me, life. Then let me hold your hand, my cousin. Uh, <laughs> when was your first big break? When do you recall? Yeah, Obviously, there, it's a dime a dozen. You could end up in the valley doing adult films, which you kind of turned the other way. You could have done that under a nom de plume, and I'm sure you'd come up with a great version of Dirk Diggler. But you actually took <laughs> semi-legitimate roles where you were typecast as a terrorist. Tell us about it. Yeah, yeah, but let me but, but let me just answer that first question and that my mom did eventually come around. It wasn't the, she never used the words like I'm proud of you, but but I, but she became I can a fan. live with you. <laughs> I can live with you. Yeah, this this will do for now until you become a doctor. No, she um she would, you know, again, I I when I first started my career, she I still I continued to live at at her place and I would come home with let's say a a videotape of a set and I'd be watching the videotape because you watch your set to see what you said and what you can fix and all this stuff. And I remember her being behind me when I'm in the, you know, I'm watching it on television. She's like back somewhere in the and in, in back of the room watching, and she was laughing and she was like, "Oh, it is very good." Like, and she'd seen me live and she'd seen the jokes, but she was still laughing. And it was it was great to see that. Like, she'd come around. And I think it wasn't until she probably started seeing me on television some. She uh, that that she started thinking, oh wow, this can actually lead to something. And you're right. Early on, when I first started, uh, the some of the parts that I was getting were um, um, typecast, uh, uh, you know, like like terrorist parts, and that was because it was early in the career, and those are the parts that were coming up. And not without my Maziar. Not without my brother. Uh, no, you know, I like that's why the title of the book, I'm Not a Terrorist, but I Play One on TV, comes because I did a Chuck Norris movie of the week where I played a terrorist. I did a terrorist in, in another really cheesy CBS TV show with Arsenio Hall and Sammo Hung. It was called Martial Law. And then I did a terrorist on the TV show 24. And after doing those three, I realized I really don't want to do any more of those. It really put a bad taste in my mouth. And I just stopped doing those. Um, so, um, so yeah, so, so that was, that was the early part of my career. And, and the beauty of, they always say in Hollywood, one of the best words is no. And when you say no, I think that people go, oh, wow, this guy is standing up for something or, or, or he's actually got a, a little bit of, he's a little principled here. Uh, and it was the best no I said, which was, I said, no more terrorist parts. And I haven't done any since. Mm, so you went detox on that. I want to know when you first got up in front of an audience, what that feeling was like. You seem oh, wow. to do it with such ease. You know, I, I, I go and Google Masdrabrani's TED Talk. Uh, you performed in front of the King of Jordan. Uh, you go in front of various different cultures and, and, and really touch third rail issues such as the axis of evil and terrorism and, and Persia. And we're like cats. And you take a lot of tension off the table when you yourself must be terrified in front of an audience with various different cultural sensibilities. Are there any Lebanese here tonight? Any Lebanese? By applause. 
Lebanese. Yeah, the Middle East is going crazy. You know the Middle East is going crazy when Lebanon is the most peaceful place in the region. My first time in front of an audience was, was when I was 12. Actually, when I was four, I think, I did one in Iran, and I, and I, and I ended up talking, and they put me in the chorus. But I was, I was talking no, but when tell, I was— Stand up, yeah. stand up. When yeah, did yeah. you get well, up well, on a stage and say, well, you know what, I'm going to do this? No, but that's what I'm getting at. So, so I first did plays at 12, and that made me comfortable on a stage. So I was comfortable being on a stage. I didn't mind being on a stage. Uh, but, the, but, the, but the fear of stand-up comes with, oh, it's your material. You've written it. You can't blame anybody. You can't blame the director, the other actors, the writer. It's all you. And basically, if they don't laugh, they're not laughing at you. They're judging you. That's all the weight I put on my shoulders about doing stand-up. So I was really petrified about doing stand-up. And, I've, and, I, and I flirted with it a couple of times in my early 20s. Um, and, I, and I had written these little monologues that I did at a couple of stand-up gigs in Los Angeles in my early 20s. But it wasn't until my mid-20s when I really thought, you know what, I'm going to go for this. And the best way I did it, I, and, I, and I recommend this to a lot of people, the, the, you either got to go in front of a total an audience of strangers and get on stage and try and tell jokes. And that's called an open mic night. And usually those are just death because no one's paying attention to you and all the other people there are doing open mics. They're all there to do their own set. Is They're the just six nervous. drink minimum uh, in order to get people <laughs> to laugh? Don't tell us about this. I read about it to get people to kind of give you some charitable laughs. Yeah, I think two drink minimum is it does help to loosen people up. Sometimes it angers people because they're like, I don't want to spend 10 bucks on a, on a Coke, you know, because it's usually an overpriced drink. But, but it definitely is there to loosen people up and it's there to help the club make money. Um, but I think what happens is either at the open. So for me, what happened was I took a class and I always tell people, I go, listen, if you can find a stand up comedy class, take the class because it's like doing an open mic, but you have a teacher who's going to give you feedback, uh, which you don't get at an open mic night. So for me, I ended up signing up for a class and, um, and it really helped. And, and I went from there. I really was never that nervous on stage, but I still, you know, you get a little nervous because you think, okay, when, for example, when you do a show in front of the King of Jordan, which we did with the Axis of Evil, you think to yourself, uh, what jokes do I, what am I supposed to cut out? What do I put in? Uh, how, you know, when you do a show that is your show at a comedy club or at a theater and people have paid to come see you, you're a lot less nervous because you can say whatever you want. And even if you cuss, it's not a big deal. It's your show. Uh, go for it. But when you do a show where there's a special guest in the audience or it's for a corporate event, uh, that's when you start freaking out. You're like, oh, my God, what can I say? What can I not say? Sometimes you have a joke that you think would not be offensive, but then in the middle of your joke, you go, oh, no, this is going to be offensive. Like one time, this is recently, I did a joke uh, that referenced bin Laden and it referenced him in a derogatory way, obviously. And in America, people love it. But I was in Saudi Arabia doing the, doing the show. And in Saudi Arabia, the bin Laden family is a respected family. So in the middle of the joke, I was like, oh, no, I am about to insult the whole family. And I was like, how do I get out of this? And I, in all honesty, I just kind of did the punchline, but I did it a little quieter just so not everybody would hear it. <laughs>
Maz Jabrani, I want to fast forward to the here and now and kind of uh, step back from this. This is a vastly different um, uh, period. They call it the golden age of content on television. You can binge things on Netflix. Uh, Your life is not necessarily dictated by how well you perform on The Tonight Show uh, or people watching TV. Millennials, maybe your target audience is much more apt to catch you on YouTube. You have to own uh, kind of the means of production and distribution in a creative way, kind of like Louis C.K. did with paid downloads. Talk to us about the opportunity there and, and the peril, because I was a big fan of this project that I believe you kickstarted was Jimmy Westwood, this this character out of California who becomes this anti-superhero out of his mother's house. And that's not something that, that Hollywood traditionally was prepared to write a check for. Absolutely. I think that I, I tell people this and, and I remind myself of it always because I get lazy sometimes. But I always say you have to create your own opportunities. And this is now an era, like you said, where we really can do that. Um, and, and, and it's amazing. I mean, to this day, like I have my agents and managers. I tour a lot. I'm, all the, I'm on the road all the time. And they're constantly saying like, OK, um, you're going to be in San Diego. So can you do a video for San Diego? They want to they put it up online. Can you do a video for the Dubai gig? And I'm constantly putting these silly videos of myself lip syncing a song and messing up the song. And I will dedicate it to whatever city I'm going to. And I upload it on Facebook and suddenly the thing gets whatever, 10,000 hits or whatever it gets. And it's amazing. It's just, it's two minutes and, and it's done and people talk about it. And so we're in this world where you have to do that. And so this movie, Jimmy Westwood, American Hero, is a movie that I co-wrote with my writing partner, Amiro Hepsian, and we produced it. And it was basically, I could describe it as the Persian Pink Panther meets Borat. It's a guy living in Iran who wants to be an American hero, finally wins the green card lottery to come to America, wants to be a cop like Steve McQueen was in the movie Bullet, but he can't get a job as a cop. So the best job he gets is working as a security guard at a Persian grocery store. If it wasn't for me to give you a job, you would be back home in Iran in prison. Why would I be in prison? Do you think they need to have a reason to put you in prison in Iran? And like you just said, major film studios are not going to make that movie. But why? Wait, hold on. Why wouldn't they? They underwrite so much stupid, dumb, you know, you could tell when it comes out. Like, I'm sure it killed you to see that. What was it? Mordecai several weeks ago, just because, you know, Johnny Depp is in it. You you can smell these bombs from a mile away. And bombs are much more expensive right now and that people are not going to the movies like they used to. Well, listen, I mean, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's it's just basic finance for these guys. Like if you say Johnny Depp's in it or if you say Tom Cruise is in it or whatever, they go, okay, great. That guy's got box office. We'll put the money in. Boom, let's go. Secondly, I'm learning more and more that it's not just the the budget and the movie, but it's the advertising budget. So they'll make a movie for $12 million and spend $20 million promoting it. So no matter what happens, that first weekend, people go see it. The movie makes its money back. And they're done. And then, and then you know, everything else is ancillary, right? You know, they, they might make some overseas money, whatever. So it's just how the system's set up. I mean, it's like, and, I, and, I've, and, I've, and I've stopped fighting the system because the, I tell this to young actors. I go, the odds of you walking down the street and somebody pointing at you and going, you, you're my next Brad Pitt. It ain't going to happen. So make your own stuff. And you look at all the guys that ended up doing really well. A lot of them started out making their own things. You know, a guy like uh, Owen Wilson did a movie called Bottle Rocket. Right. Um, you know, Sylvester Stallone did Rocky. Um, uh, just a lot of uh, a lot of people started out just putting their money in, putting it on their credit card, 
you know, you hear stories of, of, of Tarantino. I even heard a story of like Sidney Pollack when he first made his first movie and he had to mortgage his house. And I mean, it's just like, you know, you just do it. And so the beauty of this day and age is that we have things like Kickstarter and Indiegogo, which we used, uh, Indiegogo we used to, to help uh, begin funding Jimmy Westwood. And, and give uh, us an idea. What did you need to raise for Jimmy Westwood overall to make, to what, come out with three pilots or what, how, how does it work? No, no. So we were trying to make just the movie. We, we were trying to make a full length film and, you know, you go to different, you can go to different producers and a producer say, well, I can make this, I can give you a budget that's a million. I can give you a budget that's 10 million. What are you looking to do? And we said, you know what, the less the better, because ultimately our goal is for the movie to come out, people like it and make our investors their money back. So we made it for um, a little bit more than half a mil, uh, but it looks like over a mil. We got a great cinematographer, Armando Salas is his name. You know, I, I, I do want to ask you, what do you do you offer people? It's one of these these tricky things you have to do. And, and I'm also a media startup. You say at the very outset, we're all kind of doing this lean and mean because the payoff is both psychic and, uh, you know, it'll it'll come down later on when we get a big deal from Netflix or Showtime. Where does, what is the profit center? Like, what is the moneymaker for you right now? I understand your wife is successful, but if you as a kind of a comedian and, and an educated comedian and a person who's put significant sweat equity into this, uh, what is paying your bills? Well, you know, uh, a couple of things. First of all, my wife, because we have two kids now, she's not actually working. Uh, but but she was a successful lawyer. She was successful with, at that. But for the time being, she's helping uh, raise these kids. For me, it was interesting. When I first started out, I would get guest star parts on TV shows. And I would do stand-up comedy at the local clubs in L.A. And the local clubs in L.A., when you first start out, they'll pay you like $15 a set. So you might do five or six sets in a week and not even make a hundred bucks, but but really it's because you're working out and growing. So early on, my acting gigs were paying for my stand-up comedy. At some point, that changed, and suddenly my stand-up comedy. Now I tour the world, and you know, knock on wood, I make a living doing stand-up comedy. So my stand-up comedy is paying for my acting, and that it allows me also to take parts that I want to take and not take parts that I don't want to take. So for example, I can say no to terrorist parts and not worry about it because I've got a gig in uh, New York that weekend and I'm going to make make a, make my money for that weekend. I don't need to go be, be a, a terrorist on NCIS on, on CBS, you know. So that's what's happened. And, and, and I continue to do independent stuff. This movie, Jimmy Vestwood, we made it. Now we're trying to distribute it. That's a whole other world. I have such a respect for filmmakers because you think the hard part is making it. The hard part is distributing it because just like uh, uh, um, studios weren't interested in making this film. Big distributors aren't interested in distributing the film. So now we're back to finding an independent uh, distributor or, or someone who will invest some money and just to helping us get the movie out. So there's so these struggles are going to be there. So since these struggles are going to be there no matter what, I advise people two things. I say, first of all, do what you love to do. Whatever that is, do what you love to do because whatever you love to do is going to be hard, but at least you'll love it. You'll enjoy the process. And the second thing I say is make your own opportunities and that stand-up is something that I was able to create my own opportunity through by doing it over and over. I've been doing it now for 17 years and I've created a market for myself where I can make a living doing this. So that's what's keeping me afloat right now. Iranian-American funny man Maz Jobrani joined us from his living room. 
Now, switching gears to Jimmy O. Yang, who joined us from NPR LA. You know him as Gene Yang on HBO's hilarious Silicon Valley. And from the hit film Crazy Rich Asians, good sir, how are you? I'm well, thanks for having me. So I want to ship a dead body from China, but it's hard to find a white body in China, especially fat like Eric. So I buy a fat white cadaver from Cincinnati Medical School. But to ship it to China, then switch a box, then ship back, it's a way too much money. Playing Jing Yang is like playing myself when I first came to this country. You know, I had an accent. I was like the foreign kid that didn't understand much. So it came pretty naturally to me. And um, I grow like growing up, I watched a lot of Stephen Chow in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And he's so amazing. Like, you know, uh, a lot of people know him for Kung Fu Hustle, Shaolin Soccer. But before that, he had a ton of Hong Kong movies. And he is like that perfect deadpan humor guy. And to me, that was amazing. That's what I grew up watching. So a lot of Jing Yang kind of came from that. And of course, Mike Judge helped mold the whole character. He's very much into the that uh, the deadpan kind of underplayed tone of satire. So it, it just, you know... Um, as as me and TJ's characters' relationship developed, um, I think it was great. Like one season, it was him yelling at me, and the next season, it's me getting my revenge. You know, and uh, everything is kind of earned. Uh, even though Jing Yang becomes kind of like a big in a way, uh, it's 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 okay because Ehrlich was the one that's being really mean to him before that. <laughs> Ehrlich Bachman. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Jimmy O. Yang. You know him and love him as Jin Yang on HBO's Silicon Valley, which is a must-see TV every Sunday night and on DVR. Uh, his book, which dropped last month, is How to American, an Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. It was a great title, and it was Thanks. a very quick read, and I loved it, and I just know a lot as an immigrant myself that I... I shared with this book. I have some difficult questions that I have to get to. Let me, let me throw out like a loaded one at the very top right here. Sure. When I laugh at what you do on Silicon Valley, should I mm-hmm. feel any pang of guilt about laughing at that? Well, I I guess mean, do, you, do you feel like you're authentically representing what Jimmy O. Yang wants to do? Do you worry about the caricature? About, about I mean, I'm sure you hear this elsewhere, that Jin Yang might become a stereotype of like the crafty Asian guy always plotting behind the scenes. Sure. Uh, or the accent or whatever. Like for, for me, it's always, I just try to play it as authentically as possible. The accent is from my mom and from my uncles back in Shanghai. You know, and a lot of these experiences, uh, it's similar to mine when I first came to this country. So I get it. Um, I think the stereotype and maybe it's it's not a caricature. He's he's more or less in a way almost very anti-type. Like he, he's he's not the nicest person. Right. But so he's he's kind of a, a butthole. But really, it's, it's the opposite of what you think an Asian nerd would be. So I really like doing that. Um and and at the end of the day, um, I think what's more important is the representation uh, of Asians as a whole. So the representation shouldn't only fall on Jin Yang's lap. But sadly, a lot of it does because he's one of the few um, Asian series regular characters on TV. But I just hope to see more and more Asian characters and a whole spectrum of them. You know, like, for example, in Crazy Rich Asians, this movie that's about to come out, you see a whole spectrum of Asian people. You got like the really good looking romantic Asian people. You got the funny, crazy Asian people and you got the ridiculous, you got whatever, you know? So 
I think that's what's more important to see it as a spectrum instead of putting all the weight in this one character. And for me, portraying Jing Yang is just portraying a real person that exists somewhere. You know, I never try to play as a caricature or anything like that. And most of the stuff is based on my own experience. Is there any part of you that wishes maybe you were one of the programmers alongside, you know, Dinesh and Guilfoyle and, and Richard? It seems like you're on the periphery. You're always, I mean, you kind of accidentally ended up in the incubator that, that Ehrlich Bachman had, which was kind of like a, an overrated accidental place to begin with. And you were always trying to get free rent or you were exchanging documents with him and saying, no, you cannot legally evict me. It was a bit of a sideshow. And without spoiling it for anyone, you could intimately get involved with it now that Ehrlich is out of the picture and that you have have maybe a pass-through stake in, in Pied Piper, um, but you're still kind of that, you're, you're a person who kind of weaves in and out. Was that by design mm-hmm. in the show? Did you craft it that way? I think it started that way. Jing Yang was such a small character, and they liked me enough to keep bringing me back, and the character grew more and more throughout the season. So every season when I read the script, I get really happy as the character grows, you know. And uh, this year, uh, season five, he becomes... Um, more involved in the boys business you know so that's pretty exciting um and a part of me kind of really likes being that side guy that just comes in because i don't have to have to carry like too much of the plot i can just come in and be funny right so it's kind of cool you just come off the bench and you hit a couple three-pointers and and i kind of like that um and like i don't i don't have to work as much as like say thomas or something but I get to just come in and deliver the funny, which is great. Now, with the part, uh, as the part expands, hopefully, maybe even next season, I become more involved in the um, in their startup or whatever it might be. We don't know what's gonna happen. I don't know. Uh, that's up to the writers, and uh, I'm just happy to be, you know, a growing part of the show. You got a great imprimatur, and I don't know at what threshold you know you, you make your dad proud ultimately. But I saw you in Vanity Fair. It said Jimmy O Yang is ready to be the main a hole of Silicon Valley. I mean, as the comic powerhouse steps up to take T.J. Miller's place, he discusses his new book, his upcoming role in the rom-com Crazy Rich Asians, and why he actually likes playing characters with thick accents. And in this essay, you said, you know, you kind of love it because me, myself, I don't think I'm an a-hole in real life. Something about me playing an a-hole is very funny because I look very small and nice. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. It's deceiving. You know, um, I don't know when my parents will be proud. Uh, they are kind of, I guess, deep down proud a little bit. You know, foreign parents never really tell you. But I don't think Asian people read Vanity Fair. I need to get on some Chinese newspaper. What do, the, what do Chinese Americans say about you when they approach you or they write you or see you at comedy shows? It's funny. Some Most of them are very nice. They're very, very nice. And uh, some of them even say like, hey, thank you. Thank you for like representing Asian people on TV. And I'm like, yeah, you're welcome. But that's... <laughs> At the end of the day, that's not really a choice, you know? I didn't wake up and choose to represent Asian people. I couldn't represent Nigerians <laughs> if I wanted to, yeah. you know? But it, it's great, I guess, to be representing Asian people, um, but I don't I don't try to put that on my shoulder. I just try to be the best actor that I could be, you know? You know, in the book and some of the stuff I read about you, it said when your, win- when your minimum wage job at the Comedy Palace didn't pay the bills... You went from DJing at a strip club, quote, I was pairing R&B songs with strippers like a sommelier at Spago, suggesting which red goes best with beef bolognese, to selling used cars, to driving for Uber. But eventually you achieved the American dream in landing on uh, 
Silicon Valley. And in 2016, you became a citizen. I have to ask you, at this point that you have recognition, are you getting things like the Thomas Middle Ditch Verizon type offers? Are you getting advertising, marketing offers, Instagram offers? I mean, what is it like to go from being a bit player slash Uber driver on seasons one and uh-huh. two to kind of a, a full-fledged uh, I'll call you an A-lister at this point in Hollywood. I don't think so, but thank you. Um, no, actually, you're not an A-lister. You're coming on my show. You're slumming it, so you must be at least a C+. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Everything's been crazy, and uh, I, I'm not used to, like, even when I go out to a bar in, like, L.A., like, a ton of people want to come take pictures and stuff. I'm not used to that. You know, like, just a few years ago, like you said, I was driving Uber, and it's it's not something I used to. I think deep down there's still a part of me that's the same kid when I was 13 years old just trying to fit in. And anytime I even try to go buy like a nice shirt or something, uh, I can hear like my mom in the back of my head yelling at me and just be like, hey, that's that's too expensive. I can buy you five in China for the same price. You know, <laughs> so it's it's always that, that guilt and, and that same kid. Deep down, I think you're always the same person, hopefully. Um, unless unless when you get famous, you become an a-hole, and that's that's not necessarily healthy. I would like to think I'm not that. and uh, But it's almost almost too the other way for me. Like, I almost have, like, the imposter syndrome. Like, I feel like I don't belong. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying all of it. Does it make money for you doing stand-up now? It's not a loss leader? I mean, you're not getting SAG minimum anymore on, on uh, HBO. You've clearly starred in, in big movies um, mm. You know, you've been out there taking huge role. I mean, you you were opposite Mark Wahlberg in Patriots Day. After all, I mean, this, these are not bit roles anymore. You're not a, you know, kind of that guy to call if you have no one else. Right. Yeah. And um, no, stand up is great. I'm I'm finding like after I wrote this book, I'm able to like ex- like um, extract some of the material from the book to do stand up with, and it's really things that I want to talk about and I want people to hear. So it's been great. I'm finding the motivation again. And yeah, money-wise is fine. It's a lot of travel. I would rather not do that. But there's still nothing like stand-up. Like doing a movie, doing a show, that's all great. But doing stand-up, it's like an instant reward with the audience laughter and then the fans afterwards talking to you. It's just nothing better than that. So I'm still on a tour. And um, yeah, you guys can go to jimmycomedy.com. That's got my tour dates and such. Take me back to your first stand-up experience the terror the exhilaration the such a departure from what your dad and mom wanted you doing such an act of rebellion i mean i told you we had maz jabrani on this show and Mm -hmm. i think he was a phd at at berkeley or something and he just dropped Mm. it at some point and did stand up and and it was an embarrassment to his parents but you have to seek out it's something you're at that fork in the road well i can be sitting here putting pitch books and spreadsheets together and being on my, you know, third marriage by the time I'm, I'm, you know, 40 years at Solomon Smith Barney, or I could be doing something that I'm half passionate about. So what was that first time like? I always say that to, in order to do stand-up, you need a certain amount of desperation. And typing in to Google local open mics is one step away from typing in Google, what's the best way to kill myself? You know, so you, you, you do need to kind of hit a rock bottom in your life. Whereas it's, you just got divorced, you got your third DUI, or you realize you're just doing this job that you hate. Or for me, a massive panic coming out of college, not knowing what to do and hating everything that I studied. So I, I found this comedy club called the Haha Comedy Club in North Hollywood. Um, and they have an open mic every night before their real show. And I have to pay $5 for five minutes of stage time. But 
as funny or crappy as that sounds, that was still better than any other choice in my life. Like I wasn't that funny at first. I don't think anybody is, right? And but it was just such a great experience. Like I I saw this was a whole new world that I'm getting into. I'm making new friends, and if I get good at this, this could be possibly, you know, a career. So that was very liberating to just know that. There's something out there that's possible and that exists, and I don't have to be stuck behind a desk for the next 40 years. Because to me, like I said, like the thought of doing something I hate for 40 years is way scarier to me than like taking a leap and jump into the unknown. You know. Well, so many people end up doing it for 10 or 15 years and then burning out, and then you could be having this epiphany by the time you're 38. But you know, you took the pain up front as opposed to amortizing it. How did you prepare for that show? Was it just in front of the mirror? Did you go back and pick up old VHS tapes of of BET? What did you What did you do? <laughs> I um I had nothing to lose at that point, really, and I was just hoping to just go outside of the house, and that was already a victory. So when you don't have anything to lose, you know, you're pretty comfortable out there. I learned most of my English by watching BET Rap City. Yeah. Big take in basement freestyle Friday. There's nothing more American than Snoop Dogg, you know? And I didn't know any better. I just thought that's how everybody talked. So I went up to the lunch lady the next day. I'm like, hey, what it do, shawty? Yeah. <laughs> Holla at me some of that waffle fries. What's up? So I never really had that stage fear in that sense. But, um, and I just wrote down like, stupid materials that I either has heard on BET before and I did my own remix of it or just stupid masturbation jokes. I think that's all hacky stuff that new comics do, right? You're just trying to survive and get that chuckle. And then afterwards, people were like giving me taglines for masturbation jokes as if this was like a real art form. And I was like, oh my God, this is great. Like people are actually talking about this like sports science or like real like biochemistry or something. And, and breaking it down play by play. And I just found that so cool. And this was like the group of people that I really, you know, felt like I belonged. So how was that night? I mean, think back to that night. Can you timestamp it for me? What year was it? Um, this was, I think, I'm, I was going into my fifth year of college. So I was around 21, 22, 2000. Would that be 2009? Nine, 10 or years nine? ago, right, during the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, how was that? How did it follow through to the next act? I mean, did you leave? Did you go home that night exhilarated? Were you uh, on balance? I did. Did it take your panic away? Did it have a revelation? Like, you know, at that point in your life where you realize, okay, the hard part's done. I figured out what I want to do. I just have to figure out how to get there. I saw a little light shining through when I got off that stage and I drove home that night. It wasn't like, oh my God, I'm going to go on next comic standing and win this, uh, or I'm going to be the next biggest comedian or anything like that. It was just, this is a way out. Like, instead of just playing video games at my dad's house, this is my way out. There is a world of people out there, and this is a world that I like. Um, so it definitely opened up the door and gave me some hope. Um, and, and I went back there like for, I don't know, I, I paid $5 for five minutes to the next month or so before I went back to college. When did you get paid for the first time for going up on stage? Or even a free meal or something that, that it was the other way around, oh, you weren't paying to play? I think it was when I finally got a job at the Comedy Palace in San Diego. It's a Greek restaurant during the day and then called the Greek Palace. And then at night, uh, it's called a Comedy Palace. And I got a job working at a door there. Um, I'll get, I think, minimum wage, which was, I don't know, $7 an hour or something like that back then. 
And did you at in, least get some tzatziki or pita out of this experience? I did. I I, I got some free uh, euros and such. It was nice. <laughs> uh, but so I guess that was my first payment. But also, you know, um, really, I wanted to work the not for the seven dollars an hour, but I wanted the stage time. That's the most important thing. That's the only way to get good in stand up. You know, in stand up, there's no you can't just go by yourself to a gym and shoot around. You know what I mean? You can't just go work out by yourself. You have to work out in front of an audience. So it was really important to get that stage time. And I got $7 and seven minutes of stage time at the Comedy Palace. And that's really how I got my chops, you know? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Jimmy O. Yang, best known as Jin Yang on HBO's Silicon Valley. His new book is How to American, An Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. Jimmy, I see that you were at Google um, at the end of March, it said authors at Google in Mountain View, California. Talk to me about that crowd. I mean, everybody at Google and Facebook watches Silicon Valley. I and mean, what was that like? Yeah, I did a Google talk over there. It was so fun. Um, the whole campus, it was standing room only. I don't know. We had like maybe, th- I think the room only sat 200 people, but we had like three, 400 people there or something like that. Something crazy. And everybody was just so stoked to, I guess, see see one of the characters, one of the actors from Silicon Valley. And um, also, you know, like I said, uh, the Bay Area, just it's the equal amount of uh, engineer Silicon Valley people that likes to show. And also Asian people, which uh, they find, you know, the book very relatable, um, which is awesome. You know, every time somebody tells me, oh, my God, my dad's exactly the same way. I thought I was crazy or he was crazy, but that just, you know. My dad and that, you know, reading a book makes me feel a little better about that. So that's great. Um, the whole experience was awesome. And um, yeah, it was it was just really fun, positive fanfare. I mean, this month has been a whirlwind for you. I mean, it starts off in San Jose. You hit Philly for the Helium Comedy Club, Lincoln Hall in Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, Boston, Massachusetts, Riverside, California, Sacramento, San Francisco. You are a man in demand now. It's kind of crazy. So much traveling. My dream right now is to fall into a coma for a couple of days and then, you know, get back up and do it again because I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired. But uh, it's so rewarding. This is all the stuff that's happening now. It's all the stuff that I wanted to happen 10 years ago. And I wish I was doing all these shows and people are actually coming out to see me. And now it's happening. So, you know, I got to take advantage with it. I got to um, make hay while the sun is shining, as they say. Any plans to do this in China or, or you know, Hong Kong? I thought about it. I was actually, I was talking to my buddy Ruben Paul about it. Uh, He's an African-American comedian, but he made it in Hong Kong many times uh, as a stand-up, and uh, he's very popular over there. So there's a big expat market over there, Hong Kong, mainland China, even Singapore and stuff like that. But if I go there, I think I will want to try to break that ceiling even and and do it, some of it in Mandarin, you know, and, and to see how that goes. Uh, that will be an endeavor for the future. It will take a long time and effort. And uh, who knows? With all the government censorship, it might not even be a thing. So uh, we will see. But that is, I've thought about that. You know, I want to get your thoughts on, um, you know, sobering up for the role that you played in Patriot's Day opposite Mark Wahlberg. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, all fun and games there. And what that experience was like breaking through into um, the big screen. I mean, you you were with Melissa McCarthy in the film Life of the Party. We talked about this summer's Crazy Rich Asians. How does that compare to the small screen experience with Mike Judge, where after all, you know, you were you were slumming it and you were still an Uber driver. Um, you already uh-huh. talked about the economics of of making a buck or two as an onstage comedian. What is it like on the big screen? 
it, it's fun and and i still get starstruck uh when i'm hanging out with melissa or like mark or something like that um i don't think that ever goes away and maybe that's healthy um but you know silicon valley is shot very much in a movie it's a single camera shoot or you know two cameras uh and it, it's shot like a movie so um that's like my training ground you know i never went to like a juilliard acting school or whatever i took acting classes but really silicon valley was my training and uh when i stepped in uh, like um on, onto the patriots day set a life of the party crazy rich asian it just it's just another job at that point you how know? were you and recruited just, for patriots day the film and to play a serious dramatic role yeah just like anything else i i still have to audition quite a bit and i audition i think three times for patriots day um, it's a based on real life character based on a Chinese immigrant, you know, that was involved uh, in saving the day for the Boston Marathon bombing. Danny Mang, real American hero, man. He was held up at gunpoint, kidnapped by the terrorist brothers, and he ran out of the car at gunpoint and notified the police officers, which led to the shootout in Watertown uh, and the apprehension of those two. Which uh, why when I brothers. when I saw it, I didn't understand how you kept a straight face, how you can turn it on and off. Like if you see Australian actors or Nicole Kidman can completely feign an American Southern accent. I mean, how did you right. shift from being such a you know natural comedian and you were you were spawned out of the comedian comedian experience to something mm -hmm. as straight laced as this? Just you showed up for the tryout. Uh, I showed up for try. I tried very hard. I did all the research I could on Danny. I bothered him in Boston every other day, and I was just being him, you know, for like three months or so. And uh, it was tough. It was a hard experience, you know, especially reenacting what happened at night when I got carjacked and kidnapped. And uh, it wasn't pleasant, <laughs> but it was very rewarding as an actor, as an artist, and also to pay homage to somebody like Danny and, and the whole event. Um, so I think it was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. And um, in a way, you know, comedy acting is just dramatic acting, but you have to make it funny also. So now you just don't have to be funny. So there's a little, it's, it's could be, some could argue that could be a little easier. You know, I think acting is acting. You just got to play it real and you got to play it authentically. And you didn't use this experience to, to act out, to, to ask out Melissa Benoit, one of your co-characters? Oh, uh, Supergirl. Yes, Supergirl. Um, How many people get to act with Supergirl? We actually, we had, we never had a scene together. We're in the same movie, but we, we didn't see her in the catering together. truck or anything like that. I mean, you, just, you know, Kevin Bacon Did was I? there. I mean, you took I a photo have... with Kevin Bacon. You're now one degree of Kevin Bacon. I mean, this is a big deal. David Ortiz was in the movie. Yeah, a lot of J.K. Right? Simmons, the Oscar-winning J.K. Simmons, John Goodman. I mean, this right. wasn't this wasn't kind of an amateur indie production. This was a big deal. This had a fifty million dollar budget. Yeah, I, I think I I try to not think about it as a big deal whenever going in, especially when I'm working on a movie. You just want to treat it as you're here to work and you're just an actor, you know, and the more I think about it, the more it's like, what am I doing here? You know, but the less you think about it, it's just like, this is a job and I'm good at my job and I'm going to go do it and try to not get too starstruck. Uh, I, I usually, I saved the star starstruck uh, during like the media press conference later on and stuff. Uh, Michelle Monaghan is in that movie. I'm a huge fan of hers and it just, it's just awesome, you know? And um, I think the best thing about this business is, you know, um, the people that you're fans of could potentially be a fan of yours. 
And uh, I try to, I guess, approach it that way as if pretending I'm uh, on the same level as those people, uh, whether I am or not, I don't know. But um, I think that's the only way to keep myself sane and not like, you know, get super starstruck when I'm acting with them. Well, Jimmy, in the few minutes we have left, tell us about your uh, plans, kind of as the econ major, as a person who finally has the freedom to apply some business sensibility to a career. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is kind of out of left field, but I wonder when I talk to creatives, like, for example, when we had Maz Jobrani on the show, I said, here you are getting paid by Comedy Central or by Showtime ridiculous amounts to be on stage and have that special. But when you're trying to be in a feature film, you have to do an Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign to get that Mm. supported. Um, What do you what do you say about the business model of being um, the funny guy in your case? For example, if you were really in demand. Could you record an hour-long program and and have fans out there pay to pay to play pay per view around the world as opposed to touring? Yeah, I think it's just as important to have a good business sense uh, as a comedian, especially, um, and to be than to be funny. I know so many people that's hilarious, been doing comedy for fifteen years, but they never made it nowhere because they didn't know how to approach it. You know, so um, for example, I think uh, my friend Joe Coy, he shot his own special and then sold it to Netflix. Now he's selling out everywhere, adding like 10 shows to like the Irvine Improv. And it's amazing. You know, sometimes you got to bet on yourself uh, when other people's not betting on you and putting it in the right outlet. So I think you, you, you need to know uh, where to put your effort um, and your time. I think that's the most important thing um, as you grow in this business. And uh you know, putting out products, putting out intellectual properties like, you know, a book, a stand-up special or a, a, a script, a TV show. And I think that's what's important. A lot of people, you know, bless them. You know, they're very comfortable once they get on a TV show and they stop working, which is great. I wish I'm more that way so I can have more sleep. But uh, for me, it's always like I'm afraid like, you know, I'm going to fall off the next day and not make another dime. So I'm always out there trying to create and I really enjoy it. You know, like the process of writing a book, I'm writing a couple of scripts right now and uh, hopefully turning the book into a TV show or a movie soon and doing all that stand-up, like just creating stuff out of thin air. I think that's that's what gets us artists going and uh, that's the most important thing. Like IP, the intellectual properties that you create, that is, that is your currency. We are going to see how to American in some sort of screen treatment. Uh, I think so. I'm, I'm working on it. Well, because we've talked about this in many other episodes, this is no longer just about three or four media conglomerates. Netflix is massively acquisitive. Amazon is doing these things. Apple wants in the game. Facebook. I'm sure you hear it from people, but you resound generationally as the as the 30 year old and what people watch on Sunday night. So you have leverage to kind of dictate your terms. Do you want to do a Netflix comedy special? Do you want to do you want to you know do something for one of the big networks like HBO or Showtime? Uh, is Comedy Central still as relevant as it used to be? And it's funny in that you were you cut your teeth on watching BET comedy yeah maybe i'll do a show on bet who knows um <laughs> it's just it's just wherever the wind takes me and for me i just got to keep creating and uh wherever it goes it goes and uh could be a movie too who knows and uh just trying to just trying to see what 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 will hit next and uh, i'm working hard to to get it out there Thank you so much, Jimmy Yang. Jimmy O. Yang, I am so grateful that you have subordinated your career at this promising phase to come on my slummy show. 
Uh, I no, can't thank you on, enough. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. My joy. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Special thanks to NPR West in Los Angeles for hosting Mr. Jimmy O. Yang. We are on NPR One. Love us. And on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Twitter at FullDRadio. Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Jimmy Yang, give us your website. JimmyComedy.com. A funny guy. And look for him Sunday nights on Silicon Valley on HBO. Like Jimmy, we are changing the world. Think of us as an Uber for thought leadership. Visionaries for bootstrap deep dive deliverables that have VCs banging on our doors. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. <laughs>